0: Today's sermon is not your ordinary sermon. I'm going to have my sight set on our passage, and I'm going to dig into our passage like we ordinarily do. But I'm also going to talk a lot about Roger. And this is a little more unordinary than usual. Not totally, but more unordinary. Now, in case you're wondering... Roger will be here next week, uh, but because he has such a deep pastoral heart, he didn't want his farewell service to compete with the uh, confirmation service that'll be next week, because the bishop's gonna be here, and we're gonna be celebrating people who've been through uh, catechesis. And so like a good pastor, Roger uh, thought of himself last and said, well, let's do it on the 27th. So that's why we're doing it today, so you don't have to feel weird if Roger's here next week, like, why that guy's still here? You can feel, uh, you can feel that way later in September. But... Um, Now, as I talk about Roger this morning, it's going to be easy to conclude that the magnanimous charm of this handsome devil has betwixt my eyes. Uh, But this is not the case. I'm going to speak about Revel uh, for different reasons. Uh, This is a farewell sermon. I'm hoping it'll be a blessing to Roger and Cindy as they prepare to move to Cambridge. Uh, Cindy's got an amazing job that we're excited about in the nonprofit sector, and Roger is going to be pursuing his PhD at Cambridge. Uh, And to honor uh, Roger well, the first thing we all have to do is collectively agree that we're no longer going to deny that he's leaving. And I realize coming out of denial sucks. I have been denying this since February, but it is upon us. And so we can no longer deny that it's happening. So that's the first thing we're going to do to honor Roger well, is to acknowledge he's leaving, even begrudgingly. The second thing uh, is that I have kept a thesaurus close by so that my five-cent vocabulary can be a 25-cent vocabulary this morning. And I'm also going to make sure that play on words abound generously as we revel in the Lord. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, if this is your first time at St. Peter's, we're really glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, As you've already picked up, this is going to be more of a family sermon than usual. We're going to be a little more inward-facing and self-referential. That is not every week, and so I'd encourage you uh, to lean in. We're glad you're here. We're happy that you're listening in, but we'd encourage you to come visit next week. Now, before we move on to our passage... I want to consider Roger's desk because there you shall truly discover the man. Uh, The oddest and most celebrated item on his desk is a head massager. And it's (laughs) been used on countless people and, to my knowledge, has never been washed. And with great joy, I can't even tell you how many times, Roger will sneak up behind me and, without my consent, massage my head with this thing while almost whispering, does that feel good, y'all? Of course, I've had my own way of counteracting Roger's creepiness, like shown in this video. Hey, um, sorry, that package came for you. I didn't realize it was for you when I opened it. What? That. Came for me? Yeah. Did you order something? I felt bad. Nothing this big. No? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Are you being serious? Yeah. Or did you send it to me? On the, well, I didn't order it, and Mike didn't order it. Putting the head massager aside, which I gladly will, uh, throughout his time at St. Peter's, Roger has taped meaningful letters and quotes to our office window, which I must admit at first bothered me a little bit because it obstructed our view of the concrete wall across from us. (laughs) But the last quote that remains on the window is an excerpt from the speech delivered by Theodore Roosevelt titled The Man in the Arena, and it reads, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows with great enthusiasms the great devotion? And our passage from Galatians Galatians, Galatians, uh, today comes from another man in the arena, St. Paul. And what St. Paul has to say will help us see how Roger exemplifies the man in the arena as a pastor. And not just an ordinary pastor, an exceptional pastor. Now, our passage today, Galatians 4, verses 12 through 19, may initially feel like an odd passage to have chosen, Uh, One of my favorite scholars, Richard Hayes, comments that this passage is difficult to interpret because of how emotionally agitated St. Paul is. Of all the passages I could choose for today, why an emotionally agitated passage? Uh, Let me be clear, this is not my gloriously passive-aggressive way of expressing my agitation at all of you, or Roger. Uh, I'm not agitated by any of you, it's quite the opposite. I picked this passage because it shows us vividly the heart of a pastor. And that's the big idea I want to explore this morning. The heart of a pastor. The heart of Reverend Revel. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, the great Bible you are handed in, you can take that home with you. It's yours. And uh, the passage will also be on the screen in case you didn't get one of those Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn and despise me. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Let's get in the know first. Uh, The church in Galatia was founded by Paul. He came through as an apostle, which is a missionary, a preacher, a theologian, and a pastor, all in one package of a person. Uh, and, And after he had founded the church, he went on to more cities to found more churches. But in his absence, the church had been seduced into the idea that their faith in Christ Jesus was not enough. That faith alone was somehow incomplete. Now, how did this happen? To summarize it far too simply, a group of Jewish Christian missionaries by JCM uh, who followed on Paul's trail continually came in and undermined his teaching. They taught that if it's not enough for a Gentile to have faith. It's not enough. They must also go through the process of becoming a Jew. They must take on the works of the law. And so what Paul writes in Galatians is a direct response to these Jewish Christian missionaries who came in and undermined the core teachings of the gospel. And in the part of the letter we're stepping into, Paul's recalling what his relationship was like with the church in Galatia before this group of teachers came in. Before things started going adrift. Paul remembers that he came to Galatia not in strength, but in weakness. He had a physical hurt. He says, I had a bodily ailment. He doesn't tell us in the letter what that was exactly. It's likely harm that he received at a city prior as people chased him out of the city. But you can know the church in Galatia knew exactly what he was talking about. And Paul knew his presence was burdensome to them. He says, I was a trial to you. But because of the message he was proclaiming, they received him as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Paul states their commitment to him in the strongest terms possible. You would have gouged out your eyes for me. It's important to see that this trip down memory lane starts with a command. Look once more at verse 12. Paul writes, I entreat you, which can be translated, I beg you. I beg you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I beg you, become as I am. Well, what's on the line here? Why is Paul pleading? It's the very heart of the gospel that's on the line. Just as Roger is deeply Carolinian, Paul was Jewish, and it was no small part of who Paul was. Paul grew up under the law, which is known as Torah, As a youth, he would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. He intimately knew all that God required of his people. He would have meticulously pursued the law all the way throughout his adolescence. And then as an adult, he became a Pharisee. The strictest sect within Judaism. And they created laws on top of the law to protect you from even coming close to breaking a commandment of God. And Paul excelled at it. In another letter, he says, during my time as a Pharisee, I was blameless in front of the law. Paul was a great rule keeper. But then Paul encountered Jesus Christ for himself. And everything changed. He writes to the Philippians that he counts his previous life as a law-abiding Pharisee as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul discovered that his Judaism didn't set him right with God. He was not by default right with God because he had the works of the law or the badges of Judaism. Strict Sabbath observance, keeping kosher, marks of circumcision. These things were not inherently bad. They were part of his heritage, part of what it meant to be God's people, Israel. But they could not set you right with God. Because none of those things factored in to how God sees his people. You see, it doesn't matter who you are in God's economy. And even though Paul was a great rule keeper, God was never measuring him by the rules he could keep. You see, it's not about who you are or how good you are or what you accomplish or how well you perform or how big you fail. None of these things factor into God's sight of you. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free, rich or poor, beautiful or average, slightly above average. Paul came to see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that all of these things that we used to measure ourselves by are crumpled up and thrown out. Even if they were good things. God doesn't measure us the way we measure ourselves. He measures us by grace. We all need grace before the creator of the universe. And we're all offered grace. The free gift of God's love. Complete forgiveness. Eternal life that can begin now. God revealed this to Paul that faith alone saves, that faith alone brings us into grace. And not just any faith, but faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross for Paul, for us, for the world, for all of history. Do you hear the good news in this? Paul did. And so Paul did the most audacious thing for an ancient Jew. He took the message out into the world to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. He became as they were, unbound by the Torah, saved solely by faith in Jesus Christ. And he invited them to believe in Jesus as they were. He didn't require them to take the badges of Judaism. Now please don't misunderstand me here. Paul wasn't ashamed of being a Jew. He loved his heritage. Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. But as the Messiah, Jesus perfectly fulfilled who Israel was meant to be because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Torah. He made righteousness available to everybody because of his own perfection, not because of ours. But this was too revolutionary for some. You know, perhaps the Jewish Christian missionaries who followed Paul were well-meaning but misguided. That would be a gracious reading of them. They may have let their tribalism get the best of them. You know, they didn't want to lose their unique place as God's special people by allowing Gentiles in without some sort of greater conversion. The irony is that the Galatians were given the impression that they have to become Jewish to continue on in their faith. They think they have to become what Paul was. But Paul's point is this, don't try to become what I was, become what I am. Paul emphasizes that he became like them in respects to the Torah. It wasn't through law observance that Paul discovered faith in Christ, but through grace. Paul wasn't even searching for God, God made himself known to Paul. God found him. And as a result, he came to the Galatians as they were. Not when they were searching for the message. And he proclaimed faith in Christ, not obedience to Torah. And this was such good news. This was such good news. They were willing to receive Paul, even in his weakness. They were willing to gouge out their eyes for him. This is how good the news was when they first received it. What does all of this have to do with Roger? The gospel Paul preached is the gospel Roger preaches. The gospel Paul preached is the gospel Roger preaches. Roger has consistently proclaimed the good news of grace to us. He doesn't add to the gospel. He doesn't take away from the gospel. He keeps it as we've received it purely in Scripture. And when Roger cares for us, when he pastors us, when he plans for us, when he counsels us, when he preaches, it's always rooted in the foundation of the gospel. But as Ben mentioned, Roger's not content to only share the gospel with words alone. Like Paul, the gospel has formed who Roger is and how he lives. And like Paul, Roger has shared his life with us. You all need to know that Roger doesn't share his life uh, with us the way that he so generously has just because he's steeped in southern hospitality. It's because of his faith in Christ. And so Roger, I'm, I'm grateful for how you've shared your life with us how you refuse to stand above us, but you stand in vulnerable authenticity among us. You're willing to share your hurts, your strengths, your weaknesses, and you use those places as an opportunity to show us the power of the gospel. And in short, the way that you live makes the gospel more plausible to this entire room of people. And because you have shared your life so generously with us, Many people here are willing to gouge out their eyes for them. Metaphorically, not literally, just to be clear. Roger and Cindy, you have become family to us because of your unswerving commitment to the gospel. And so you need to know no matter how far you may try to run away from us, we're not going to let you go easily. And that if you ever need anything in Cambridge, St. Peter's Fireside is here for you. Can I get an amen? amen. Paul continues in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul puts it starkly. I proclaim the truth to you, and you loved me. Will you now abandon me, treat me like an enemy by leaving the truth for these false teachings? The church in Galatia is at a point of decision. Who will they listen to, Paul or the teachings of these other missionaries? They can't befriend both. The two do not work together. While we're not facing a group of people uh, within our church trying to undermine the core teachings of the gospel, this does not mean that we're not facing false teachings. And time and time again, Roger has showed us how the messages we're inundated with from culture can oppose the truth of the gospel. And when this is the case, Roger hasn't been afraid to tell us in the starkest of terms that we cannot befriend both. That we can't be friends with this message we're hearing from culture and the message of the gospel. That we must make a choice about which story we'll live by. Whether it's consumerism or hyper-individualism, aspects of secularism, the false identities that we're tempted to live by, you name it. Whenever Roger preaches or pastors us, he shows us that the truth of the gospel is never worth compromising. But Roger helps us by exposing the motives behind the challenges we face. You see, it's simple to point out the challenge. It's much harder to reflect on why that challenge is tempting for us to believe. that's what Paul does here. Paul points out the motives of these other missionaries. They just want power. They just want status. They just want followers. They would have done really well on Instagram. In the same way, that joke did not land. In the same way, whatever issue Roger addresses, he helps us understand what's going on in the heart, in the affect. You see, consumerism turns us into commodities. Hyper-individualism undermines community. Secularism can flatten the world in an unhelpful way. False identities are ultimately going to rob us of the peace and joy of knowing Christ. And Roger knows that when we will see their working motives, they'll lose their competitive edge against the gospel because nothing can compare to God's love shown to us in Christ Jesus. And thankfully, we're grateful to Roger for telling the truth. Partly because he does it so well. He speaks with courage, conviction, compassion, and to break the alliteration, sorry Roger, gentleness. And I've been on the receiving end of Roger's truth speaking, and I know many of you have too. Several years ago, you might recall that at one of our family meetings, uh, I put my foot in my mouth or maybe better put both feet in my mouth or whatever metaphor you want to use. How I acted and the things I said at that family meeting were well short of the life God was calling me to live. And it was painful for us as a community, but I wanted to pretend like it didn't happen. A few nights later, I was with Roger at his apartment, which looked nothing like this, but it was the closest I could get without being creepy. And <laughs> we're sitting in cozy chairs at a, in a dimly lit room but not dim enough to be awkward and it was all part of Roger's plan. Make me feel comfortable. <laughs> Partway through the night he brought up the family meeting and he spoke very carefully and he said to me, and I've never forgot this, he said, there were things that you said that were hard even for me to hear. But what's beautiful about how Roger approached this is that his words had a sobering effect, not a condemning effect. He created space with truth and gentleness and a glass of scotch, which I'm sure helped, and he spoke the truth. But he spoke the truth with his heart, too. The pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, writes, it's your heart, not the dictionary, that gives meaning to your words. Your vocabulary, my dear friend, is robust, but your heart is bigger. When Roger corrects us with truth, it has a sobering effect, not a condemning effect. He wakes us up to a better reality, better possibilities, a fuller life with Jesus. He shows us that the truth is our friend. And while it can be sobering to see the motives behind the messages we were believing or tempted to believe, Roger Roger always couples his truth speaking with the most important truth, Jesus Christ himself. This is the heart of Roger's truth speaking, bringing us to the message of the gospel again and again, and again. And for this reason, Roger, you have become our friend. Finally, Paul writes in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul knows he's speaking harshly with the church in Galatia. He's aware that this is a tense letter but he's doing it because of what is on the line. In these final verses, we discover the heart of hearts of a pastor. Paul writes, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I don't want to accuse Paul of overstating his case, but maybe, maybe this is a touch on the hyperbolic side. I just want to give voice to what some women are thinking right now. I've been at two labors. I've seen the anguish. Is this really the pain that Paul believes he's in? You know, what pain exactly? The false labors? I could believe that's the pain Paul thinks he's in. You know, Braxton Hicks contraction, Sure, maybe. Transition and active labor? I don't know, Paul. But Paul, he's co-opting this vivid metaphor to share the anguish of his heart. And his anguish is this. He wants to see Christ formed in the Galatians. He wants to see the ways of Jesus, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, and the self-control. All of these things that we see in Christ, he wants to see that formed in the church. This is the heart of hearts of a pastor, to see the church live more and love more like Jesus himself. And a healthy pastor carries a unique pain, one that is easily exacerbated and one that is impossible to escape. It's a sincere desire and it's why any healthy pastor continues in ministry to see Christ formed in people and in churches. All the preaching, all the sharing of life, all the truth speaking, it's all for the sake of seeing Christ formed in you. And if a pastor loses this focus, he or she should quit Pastoral ministry. But we should take note that Paul is not merely concerned with a few troublesome individuals. Paul's concerned for the whole community. The pronoun you is plural, to put it in Carolina terms, to see Christ formed in y'all. Paul wants to see Christ take root in their relationships, in the way they relate to one another, in the way they care for one another, the way they address life in Galatia together. Paul wants to see Christ-likeness in the whole church, and not just some of the church. And Roger, I've seen intimately the burden you carry for our people. And the challenge of seeing Christ formed in ourselves, let alone others, it rarely happens at the speed we would like. Returning to the birth metaphor, outside of modern interventions, the baby comes at the speed the baby comes. And seeing Christ formed in people, it takes patience. And the difficulty with patience is that it requires patience. That's part of the anguish. It looks a lot like waiting and hoping, silence and praying. Waiting and hoping, silence and praying. The pastor and theologian Zach Eswine writes, Patience says to your empty hands, God is here. Patience looks the worst in the face and says, God will not leave you. And I've seen you embody this sort of patience for our community and for me and for yourself. I've seen firsthand and perhaps closer than most the weight of responsibility that comes with the mantle of your work. And this pain is not optional for any pastor. And I'm deeply grateful for the seasons of sharing in the labor pains together. And more so, I'm grateful for the patience that you've consistently demonstrated in the process. Because, Roger, you are the man in the arena. You're fighting the good fight of faith. All for the sake of Christ being formed in this group of people. And we're indebted to you for this great burden and this great passion, your consistency and your unswerving commitment to the truth of the gospel. And thank you for bearing the pain, for making the sacrifices, for holding on to the truth almost as passionately as you hold on to Jesus Christ himself. My sole encouragement to you, as you continue on in the labor pains of pastoral ministry, which you should all know, Roger's not pursuing a PhD to escape his vocation as a pastor, but to enter into it more deeply, is to never numb the pain with complacency or busyness. Never numb the pain with complacency or busyness, but rather allow the Spirit of God to strengthen you as you carry this great burden for the church. You, Roger, have done faithful work in this place. And Christ is being formed in all of these people, in part because of your faithful presence, your consistent encouragement. Your readiness to sit with some, to walk with others, and to challenge us all when necessary. Have you been perfect? By no means. But you've used your imperfection as a means of grace. Much of Paul's tone in this passage is combative because of what his precious church in Galatia is facing. But we don't have to stand with you in combat, but with gratitude. Paul's written in verse 18, It's always good to be made much of, for a good purpose. And you've given us ample reason to make much of you this morning. Because you've always made much of Jesus in our presence. And you've always given your all to making his beauty known to us in every way possible. So thank you, Roger. I hope that I've honored you well in this sermon, that I've highlighted your pursuit of Christ, because I am grateful for how you've honored Jesus. And how you are committed to him. And that you're following him every step of the way. And so may God continually strengthen you for good work. And may Christ be powerfully seen in and through you as you continue on in ministry. Grace and peace. Amen.